Welcome to Sup Media Reviews, the podcast that never needs spoiler alerts because it takes you back in time to relive the nostalgia of classic TV shows and films that you've probably already seen. I'm your host, Kiara, and each week I'll dive into the archives to bring you my take on movies and TV shows from at least 20 years ago. From cult classics to forgotten gems, I'll review them all and give my honest opinion on their impact and whether or not they still hold up today. Join me as we revisit the iconic characters, memorable moments, and timeless themes that made these shows and films so special. So take a break from adulting and get ready for a trip down memory lane with Sup Media Reviews. What's up, Home Slices? Thanks so much for tuning into Sub Media Reviews. I'm Kiara, and I'm super excited to review the amazing and weird 1997 film, The Fifth Element. The movie features Bruce Willis as Corbin Dallas, Mila Jobovich as Lilu, Gary Oldman as Zorg, and the hilarious Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod. I watched this movie for the first time about 15 years ago, and it immediately became one of the movies I hear just randomly put on a few times a year. Come to find out, my sister Arabia also really loves this movie, so she is here to share her thoughts too. Say hi, Arabia. What's up, Home Slices? <laughs> so she is back for another review, and I'm super happy to have her here with us. So before we dive in, let's talk about some fun facts from the movie. The first fun fact is that the divine language that's spoken by Lilu was invented by the co-writer and director Luke Besson, and it was further refined by Mila Jovovich, who had little trouble learning and developing it, as she was already fluent in four languages. The language had only 400 words. But the director, Luke, and Mila held conversations and wrote letters to each other in the language as practice. By the end of filming, they were able to have full conversations in this language. That's pretty cool, honestly. Just make up a language and then start talking in it. (laughs) Yes, that has always been like really weird to me. People inventing languages. So there's like Klingon and then there's the Dothraki. Mm -hmm. And some people actually learn those languages and I'm like what (laughs) (laughs) why would you learn a fake language like it I don't know but I guess it is pretty cool for them to be able to have like their own thing between them it's pretty neat okay the second fun fact is that Luke Besson wrote the original screenplay when he was in high school he had conceived the story of this movie and invented the world of the movie as a child so he could escape his lonely childhood That's depressing. He began writing the script when he was 16, though it was not released in theaters until he was 38. He made the hero a taxi driver because his own father worked a second job as a taxi driver to support him as he went through art school. Luke has a taxi driver in almost all of his movies to honor his father. Well, that's sweet. I was hoping that this was actually a book that could be like way more detailed because it, it has like the makings of being based off of a book to me. So that's pretty interesting. 16, that's a pretty good story to come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like, yeah, this movie could be written by the 16-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> there are just some fanciful kind of things in it that just makes me think of like, okay, a teenage boy could have 
dreamt of this place. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the final fun fact is that according to the Ultimate Edition DVD of Fifth Element, Prince and Michael Jackson were the sources of inspiration for the part of Ruby Ron, and both were even considered for the role, with Prince being the first choice. Now, I know you knew this, Arabia, but -hmm. this was a fun fact that I did not know. How cool would it have been to have Prince in this role? That'd have been awesome. It was totally him. I get him saying no. <laughs> totally get it. But um, it would have been pretty cool. Even though I think Chris Tucker brought that, like him being funny to it, that maybe Prince couldn't. Right. <laughs> so I'm glad Chris Tucker got the role because it's so unexpected. The role is just so completely it's just a wild road to me. I was like, who, who came up with this? <laughs> yes. Yes. He's literally my favorite part of this movie, but we'll get into that yeah. later. Like, I freaking love Ruby Rod. He's the best. <laughs> so if you want to check out The Fifth Element, you can watch it for free on Tubi as of the recording of this episode. So let's talk about our personal connections to this film. Arabia, why do you love this movie so much? Okay, first of all, this is my second favorite movie of all time. Not going to lie. I've watched this when I was... I can't tell you how old I was little. I want to say my earliest memory, I could have been like eight. I remember the house I lived in. And I want to say maybe I was eight years old or seven. And I just thought it was so cool. I knew who Chris Tucker was. I've always loved Chris Tucker. And I was like, what is this character? This is a crazy, this is a crazy character. And I love it. And Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich. It's just something, this is a great like sci-fi movie. I don't talk about it with a lot of people. So I don't know how like much popular it was or if like a lot of people are aware of it or not but it's the best it's like it's the second favorite movie and it means a lot to me so i watch it every year a few times just to get that good feeling yeah so what is your first favorite movie oh gone with the wind okay i actually have never Mm -hmm. seen that Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but that does make sense you are like a period piece type of girl so yeah I, i get that yeah So for my personal connection, I was a teenager when I first saw this movie. I definitely heard of it a lot. It's one of those things where like you grow up hearing a name or like a reference and you're like, I don't know what that is. So I think my aunt had it in her like DVD collection. And I was like, I've heard the name of this movie a lot. Let me check it out. And so I watched it by myself and I loved it right away. Like it had adventure. It didn't take itself too seriously. It's like pretty campy. And, you know, there was a woman saving the world. I mean, come on. And for the first time ever, I saw Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod. And I was like, what the heck is he doing in this movie? <laughs> of course, I knew Chris Tucker as comedian. I think Rush Hour had come out by then. Definitely saw him on Friday and a few other movies. And Chris Tucker kind of plays a similar character in a lot of his stuff. Like goofy, you know, comedian. He's really funny. But I'd never seen him this way. So I was like, Chris Tucker has some range. Like he, we should give him more credit for that. And it's literally my favorite character that Chris Tucker has ever played. So yes. Yeah, I feel like we don't talk about his performance enough, just like as a society, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. I remember my mom showed me this movie. That's how I introduced it. But she quotes, and she does. She quotes one part all the time. And for the longest time, I didn't know that's where it was from. But it's like in the beginning of the movie. We can talk about it when we get to that part, but it's okay. It's <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I'm super excited to dive into this movie. So let's chat. 
So it's the opening scene of the fifth element and there's some weird giant spacecraft that's in outer space and it's like heading towards Earth. It's the year 1914 in Egypt and there are little Egyptian children at some weird ancient temple dig site. There's an older man who I'm assuming is a professor who's trying to interpret a prophecy that's engraved on the temple wall. His assistant is this really like uninterested Luke Perry. And we learned that when the planets are in eclipse every 5,000 years, there's some weird door that opens and a big evil comes into the world. And then some guy in a robe appears and he starts eavesdropping and he's like, you know, they're learning too much. And he takes the water supply from the child that they are using to fetch them water in the Egyptian desert. And I'm like, okay, child labor was okay in 1914. <laughs> <laughs> and the older man, the professor continues to read the prophecy and he pieces together that there is a fifth element after earth, water, fire, and air. And so the weird dude is like, mm, they're getting too close, the guy in the robe. And so he decides to poison their water supply. And he's like, Lord, forgive me. In this scene, there's like a kid holding up like a reflective thing to give the guy light. And in this, he keeps saying Aziz light. And my mom says that all the time. And I'm okay. like, what, what are you talking about? But I eventually figured out that that's what she was, where she got it from. So that's the quote she says like all the time. Yes. And Luke Perry is even like counting how many times he has to say it. And it's, yeah. I think it was like 15 times almost. So <laughs> yeah. the, the kid was tired. He was falling asleep and like not holding the reflective mirror up enough. And like, again, child labor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, so... He puts a vial of poison into the water supply and he approaches the other men and they address him as father. So he is some type of priest. So the old man figures out that the fifth element is a weapon that they use against evil. And he's like, this discovery is going to make me famous. And the father obviously doesn't want that news to get out. So he tries to get them to drink the poison, but the professor throws the water out and is like, I don't want water. I want wine to celebrate. So he gets... Luke Perry's character to go and get the wine. But then this weird shadow comes over the area and this large, oddly shaped spaceship lands in front of the temple. And Aziz light happens again because <laughs> the professor is like, what is going on with the light or whatever? These aliens are weird. These weird aliens leave the spaceship and enter the temple. They got huge shoulders, tiny little heads, and I can't even describe the shape of their heads. There's like a dinosaur in Jurassic Park yeah. that has a similar yes. shaped head. And I don't know the name of the dinosaur, but they're very weird. And they like are really slow too. And they're metal and they're clunky. They're and clunky. When I was little, I was terrified of these aliens. I don't know no. why, but like when this part came on, I could like not really look. I used to be scared and the, the way they waddle and in the way, I don't know, something like animatronic is with them, like the way they mm -hmm. move. And I think that used to just freak me out. <laughs> Yeah, for me, they just kind of look ridiculous. Again, I was older when I watched it the first time. I was like, these little slow aliens, whatever. So they enter the temple and Luke Perry is terrified. And he starts using some like drawing kit to draw the aliens. And he's like almost in a trance, drawing them without looking at the paper and freaking out. Like, mm -hmm. I understand. It's 1914. I don't even know if they were like... Aliens are real. <laughs> they yeah. can even really conceive that aliens existed at the time. So the father, the priest in the robe, calls the aliens Lord. And the alien is like, a war is coming. And 
you know, you guys have done pretty good so far at protecting the secret, but the stones aren't safe on earth anymore. And the professor finally sees them and he's like, whoa, he's stunned. And so the aliens use these weird finger keys <laughs> to open <laughs> a passageway in the temple. And inside the passageway, they also knock the professor out, which kills him. I was confused of whether he was asleep or he actually died. Right. I was confused about that. I was kind of confused about it, but later on, Luke says that the professor is dead. So I'm going to assume that he was actually dead and not knocked out. So yeah, but they open this passageway and they're like four pillars with stones on them. And each of them are representing the elements. And then there's this weird statue in the middle showing the fifth element with its head to the sky. And so they float the statue out of the temple and into the spaceship and the father says that if you take the fifth element, we're going to be defenseless. And, you know, when the evil comes and the weird aliens are like, well, when the evil comes in 300 years, we're going to come back. And this is actually my first time watching this movie, realizing that the statue they removed from the room actually had the fifth element inside of it. I don't know why I didn't put that together. I put it together. I just thought it was weird. Like they freeze the last time <laughs> and she like crystallize and statue. I didn't really understand that. <laughs> Yeah. Is it a coffin? Like, what is it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just very strange. Yeah. So Luke goes to check on the professor and sees that he is dead or he surmises that he is dead. And he has this old gun, super old gun. And he's like trying to, you know, aiming it at the alien, aiming it at the priest. And the father is like trying to calm him down. He's like, hey, you need to calm down. These are our friends, whatever, whatever. And Luke is freaking out and ends up tripping with the gun. And he shoots the alien and somehow triggers the door to close that part i was like why are the doors closing <laughs> i don't know how him shooting this gun caused the doors to close maybe it's like a defense mechanism We're like oh the you know this is where the fifth element and the stones are so if something weird happens it just like closes i don't know yeah you know egyptians are famous for booby traps so maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the doors end up closing and the priest is able to get out of that passageway but the big lumbering alien of course can't make it and the priest was like come on you can make it and he's like boo 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 <laughs> like <laughs> just walking really slow so the alien kind of knows he's not going to make it out of there in time before the door closes so he gives him some tips or whatever before <laughs> he is trapped in there forever this part also scared me oh really <laughs> when he gets squished i don't know oh, yeah. when i was little i was like oh god this is weird <laughs> <laughs> yes so as the doors are closing the alien tells the father like pass on your knowledge to the other priests that are coming down the line to prepare for our return and then he places his hand between the closing stone doors and gives the father his little finger key the alien ends up dying and the spaceship leaves right away I mean, they didn't come back and say hey where's bob like they no, just they're left. like we going <laughs> <laughs> they just left and the father is like i'm gonna pass on my knowledge yeah. and so this is the main conflict of the story there's an alien race that has four stones representing four elements and they also have the fifth element and they are the key to saving the universe from a great and destructive evil that's going to arrive in 300 years and potentially destroy the earth how will mankind survive right. <laughs> 
I like the name. I can't really say the name of those aliens. It's like the Monochewin, I want to say. Yeah, Mondochewins, something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So yeah, they are called the Mondochewins. I didn't pick that up until way later in the movie. So yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The weird lumbering aliens are called Mondochewins. So next in the movie, it's 300 years later and technology has advanced a lot. It's the year 2214 and the planets are about to be an eclipse, y'all. It's about to be doomsday, basically. So... We see this military spaceship witnessing a planet taking form. And this planet is like the evil coming together. Evil is upon us. So we're at the New York City headquarters and we meet the president of the Federated Territories, Debo. (laughs) (laughs) Another person was like, what? What are you doing here? Yeah, so this movie came out in 1997, which was two years after Friday came out. For those of you who are unaware, Thomas Dwayne Lister Jr., the actor who plays President Lindbergh in Fifth Element, also played Debo in Friday. So I thought it was really kind of cool that they were back in the same movie together, even though their characters never Interact. interact. Yeah, I thought it was pretty neat. And I also want to point out that he may be the first Black person I saw depicted as president. I think so. I was thinking about that. I want to say, yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty neat. So the POTUS gets a call from <laughs> from the general who was aboard that military spaceship that we saw earlier. And they have a discussion like trying to figure out what this planet is. The general is like, mm, I don't know. And our technology can't identify what it is, but it keeps growing. It keeps getting bigger. And the general is like, my philosophy is shoot first, ask questions later. And it's like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not go that way with this big, dark, giant thing, but okay. (laughs) Yes. Now, in the same room with the president and the president's advisors, it's like this audience of people. And in the audience is a priest named Vito Cornelius, and he has a priestly assistant with him named David. He is an expert in astrophenomenon, and the priest wants to share his thoughts on what the planet is. And the president is like, you got 20 seconds. And he basically says, it's evil. It's coming to destroy the earth. And evil begets evil. It's only going to get stronger if you attack it. And we find out that the population on Earth at this time is 200 billion people. Oh, I didn't pick that up. Oh, my goodness. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But they decide to shoot anyway. And they realize that the planet is actually intelligent enough to start protecting itself from the coming attack. So this is not just planet like there's intelligent thought behind it. So of course it's something they've never encountered before. So the president tells the general, hey, like I'm kind of doubtful about us attacking and the general's like, I'm not. And then they shoot it (laughs) and they shoot it with like three missiles and then they shoot it with like 10 more missiles, but the planet keeps growing and it's growing so big that it collides with the military spaceship and that general and all of his men die. Even though the president is like, get out of there. And he's just kind of staring on in amazement. And like a trance and this like hot fudge starts pouring down. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, I guess this is supposed to be blood and the planet thing is doing it to them. But like, it looks like hot fudge. (laughs) It It probably is because they do use chocolate for... (laughs) blood sometimes (laughs) the scene in psycho the famous like shower scene with the blood in psycho Mm -hmm. they use chocolate that's like a famous known fact but yeah it does look brownish yeah it does so yeah 
they end up dying and they don't abort the mission. <laughs> Weird skull comes out of the fire when everything explodes. Like, I guess to signify the evil. I don't know when skulls became a sign of evil. Like, we all have them. Yeah. <laughs> they're, just, they're just there. But enter Corbin Dallas. It's a new scene. And we see Bruce Willis, who is in South Brooklyn. He's playing a character called Corbin Dallas. And he is in this super advanced, tiny apartment. Arabia, what do you think about his apartment? One, it's like actually kind of tidy but i don't know if i could live in such a there's no living room there's just a kitchen the bed comes out of the wall the shower comes out of the wall <laughs> it's like very compartmentalized mm-hmm. so i don't know if i could live in there it's kind of cool but i don't know if i could live there every day yeah it is small reminds me of maybe something that would be like in japan like yes. with the, how small it is and how advanced the technology is it really is just like a small room that like all of the gadgets move around and things talk to you and a lot of the stuff is automated and i think it's pretty neat and he has like the fish tank with the fake fish i used to love those as a kid i don't know if you <laughs> <laughs> saw that but yeah we meet him and he gets a call from a man who he was in the military with who is actually Actually, his current boss and that call gives us some background on who Corbin is. Corbin owns a cat and he used to be married but she was a two-timing slut who broke <laughs> Corbin's heart. <laughs> That's straight from the movie. I would never call a woman that. <laughs> but now he's looking for the perfect woman and he has like a lot of awards and medals of honor from his time in the military. Mm-hmm. He has no food in the fridge. He's like a bachelor who's like having a hard time. That's yeah. <laughs> the big idea of what's going on in his life. He used to be a space fighter and now he's a cab driver and the phone call ends and a commercial comes on and we hear Chris Tucker's voice as Ruby Rod promoting a giveaway for a resort called Flossed in Paradise, which is hilarious. A play on words, Lost in Paradise. Ah, I didn't get that. (laughs) Yes. So there's some type of giveaway going on where somebody's going to win tickets to this resort. I can't remember if the resort is new or if they're doing just like a big promotion or whatever, but it's like a really popular resort that like people are super into. So later on that day, Ruby is going to announce the winner of the tickets to that resort. So Corbin leaves his place and right as he leaves, he ends up getting robbed by a guy who's wearing a picture of like outside of his apartment in front of the peephole, which, which is I smart. thought was hilarious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like super smart and this scene basically only shows us like how tough Corbin is like he takes the gun from the robber he adds it to his collection of guns and he like basically tells the guy to scram and get out of there so he just comes across as this skilled former military man who kind of lost his way after his heart got broken so not even all of his accomplishments can fill the emptiness of you know not having the right woman in his life question do you think Bruce Willis looks good because I think he looks great in this movie I don't think Bruce Willis is attractive. (laughs) (laughs) That's just me personally. He looks good. There's a part where he's just like, where's this? You see his whole body. He just looks really good. He has like this tank top on and this short, I mean, these pants and like his silhouette. He looks, I don't know. I thought he looked good in this movie. I will say he looks physically fit. (laughs) I don't know that Bruce Willis has ever looked good to me. I actually prefer him with a bald head. I will say that. But in this movie, he has blonde hair with a receding hairline. And we don't talk about it. So, <laughs> okay. Um, 
So he gets into his cab and we hear that he has five points left on his license. At the time, we don't know what it means, but basically they're on a point system where if you get into an accident or you're speeding or if there's some type of infraction, the car keeps track of how many times you get into those incidences. And I guess when you run out of points, your car doesn't operate anymore. So we're back to the president and the priest and they're having a chat about this growing planet. So he tells them basically all the knowledge that was passed down to him from that other priest at the beginning of the movie. There's four elements that need to be gathered around the fifth element. And this is the only way to defeat the growing ball of evil. When the five elements unite, they bring about the light of creation. But if evil stands in the place of the fifth element, basically the world ends as we know it and darkness prevails. So at the same time, a spaceship with the weird chubby aliens, the Mondo Shewin, <laughs> they get permission to land on Earth. So they are coming to bring the stones in the fifth element, all five elements. And these hideous big lip aliens. The ugliest aliens I've ever seen in a movie. They are so Girl, yes. ugly. <laughs> yes. And I don't even know that the only thing they really called them in the movie was the warriors. Oh, they called them they had a- the Mangaloids. At, like towards the end. Mangalore. Mangalore. Mangaloids. One of those. <laughs> okay. The big lip Mangalores are <laughs> in like a tinier spaceship and they destroy the Mondashiwin spaceship. And so the Mondashiwins crash and the priest is listening to this. And so is the president. And basically the priest is like, we're screwed. Our hope for survival is dead. It was on that ship. There's no way we're going to be able to survive this, right? So Aknot is the leader of the Mangalores, the Big Lip Mangalores. <laughs> He's in the spaceship that shot down the Mondashiwans, and he contacts a man named Zorg. And Zorg, who has a fabulous short haircut and <laughs> a plastic skull cap, I don't even know what to call it, like a, some weird plastic thing across like the side and back of his head. Zork ordered the attack on the Mondashiwins. So they're going to bring Zork something back to his factory in a few hours. So Zork sent them on a mission to grab something. Okay, so the president calls a state of emergency and the priest is ordered to go home because now this is like a national security matter or whatever. And we find out there's a single survivor of the crash. Now we're at the nucleo lab in New York and we find out the survivor is like a body part that only has a few live cells left. And the scientist who's like in charge is like, oh, this cell is perfect. And it has so many neurons or something, whatever. (laughs) And they use this weird genetic recreation robot to 3D print the rest of her. And it's like, okay, at the 2214, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) We just 3D printing genetic material, I guess. We built a body. I like the scene. Yes, (laughs) basically. Yes, it's really advanced science or whatever. And so... The graphics, though, are bad. (laughs) (laughs) The graphics of them. It's 97, so I like give it a pass. Yes. The (laughs) graphics are very bad. They're almost cartoonish. (laughs) And they put on a shield so that the body can create skin. And then when they remove the shield, a thin, naked white woman appears. (laughs) And... (laughs) 
they use thermal bandages to clothe her and some weird flash happens. I'm assuming they're taking a picture and it wakes her up and she's like writhing, like trying to figure out where she is. And she has the oranges hair and she's obviously confused about where she is. And she starts speaking the divine language and they don't recognize the language. So like, we don't know what she's talking about. And then the president's like right hand man. I'm actually not sure who he was. I think he was just like a general in the president's military or whatever he goes up to the glass and kind of says something to her that was a little mean I can't remember what he said something about like you're gonna have to learn English or something and she punches through this unbreakable glass (laughs) and like knocks him out and everybody starts freaking out because this glass is supposed to be unbreakable and she escapes through a wall she just hops through this like aluminum foil (laughs) 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 this aluminum foil wall And tries to escape through the vents, which is not the first time that she tries to escape through vents in this movie, which I think is like a little weird. Okay. I feel like she should have known. How does she know that she could do that? I know she's like, you know, supposed to be a supreme being, like super intelligent, super strong and all that stuff. But she's just like, I'm going to just go through this wall and whatever happens, happens. (laughs) I don't care if it's cement. I'm going to just go. (laughs) (laughs) I think she just took a calculated risk. Yeah. Or whatever. One of the things that they keep saying throughout the movie is like, she's perfect. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, this is what we are saying is perfect. Like she is a beautiful woman and she has like a good body. But perfect. <laughs> okay, guys. Just got to roll with it, I guess. <laughs> right. Yes. By whose standards? Okay. But <laughs> so Lilu escapes. Her name is Lilu. We don't find that out till later, but I, I don't want to call her anything else for now. She crawls through a vent and she sees the city of flying cars. Like the vent leads her to outside and she's really stunned by what she's seeing. And she's way up high. The city is like super tall and there are cars that are flying they don't really have streets like it's it's a lot to take in i would be stunned as well having never seen anything like that so the police come after her with a flying unit and they can't identify her and she ends up diving off the building and lands through the roof of corbin's taxi now of all the taxis in the world it had to be his (laughs) that accident cost him four points on his license (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't, it was not. Yes. So yeah, it cost him four points on his license and now he only has one left. So he puts the car on autopilot to figure out what the heck. And he sees there's a lady in his cab, not just a lady, a perfect lady. (laughs) (laughs) Which he mentioned earlier that he was looking for the perfect woman. So. Right, right. And so he's trying to figure out what's going on with her. And she's, of course, speaking a divine language. And he's like, "Mm, I don't know what you're talking about, girl. (laughs) And she says, like, bada bing, which I thought was funny, like, big bada boom. Mm -hmm. That little exchange was hilarious to me. But she was basically describing what happened to her and explaining, like, the explosion of the ship she was on. That's what I'm assuming. So the police approach him and they say, like, hey, we're going to get her out of your cab. And she reads a sign and says, please help. And I'm like, this girl is super intelligent because she don't know this language. And she read and sounded out two words in like 10 seconds. And Corbin is like, I don't have time for this. Like, let them get you because like, I don't want no problems. I got one point left on my license. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I don't want problems. Like, I can't deal with this right now. And she's just basically begging, like, please help. 
And at some point he has a change of heart and a police chase ensues. He whisks her away and the police are chasing them. And we see a futuristic McDonald's <laughs> of course, and a futuristic police chase. And they end up evading the cops by going into the fog, which is like this weird layer of smoke that's over the bottom part of New York. So what it looks like is like New York is underneath them and they just built the city higher and higher. To avoid whatever that is, like the fog. Yeah. Was thinking that. Right, right. So there's probably like some advanced type of pollution or something down there. So. <laughs> <laughs> so while they're hiding, the fifth element is like freaking out because she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. She was <laughs> banged around in the back of that cab. Yes. So she asks for a priest named Vito Cornelius and Corbin finds him in the phone book. Out of the, what, 200 billion people in the world? <laughs> and he happens to be in New York. Yes. Right. So he goes to Vito's apartment with the fifth element and basically has to barge his way in because Vito is like all sad or whatever because all hope for humanity is lost. And so Vito sees her tattoo and realizes that she's the fifth element. And because they're sexist, they didn't imagine that the fifth element would be a woman. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's a she. Right. Right. So Vito faints. And Corbin has to slap him awake. And once again, they're talking about how perfect she is. And Corbin, like she had fallen asleep or had passed out or whatever. And Corbin kissed her to wake her up and she put a gun to his head. And I was like, yeah, get him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not sleeping, beauty. Don't, don't kiss me. Right. 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 Like non-consensual kisses. Like I cannot stand them. I cannot stand them. And they happen in movies all the freaking time. Always. And so she He's saying something to him while she's holding the gun to his head. And he's like, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And he shouldn't have. But he asked her for her name. And it's too long. Do you know Lilu's full name? No, she's like, and I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So he learns that her name is Lilu. And Lilu is relieved to see Vito when he wears like his priestly garments. So Vito kicks Corbin out. And then he asks for a translation of something that she said while she was holding the gun to his head. And it was ectogamut, which translates to never without my permission. Exactly. Consensual kisses only. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Consent is very important. So Corbin goes home and he hasn't fed his cat and he's in trouble with his boss because he was supposed to bring his cab in for like an inspection or whatever. He also lost all his, that one point was gone with that car chase. He did. Yeah. With the car chase, he lost the one point and he had to disconnect the computer (laughs) from the taxi to keep it operating. So he just kind of had a bad day, but he fell in love. So how can you have a bad day when you fall in love? Mm So we flip back over to Vito's house and we see that she is watching some CD-ROM, I'm assuming, uh, (laughs) that's supposed to help her download all the information she needs to know about like the the, last 5,000 years. (laughs) Yeah, the last 5,000 years. Where do you get this type of CD-ROM? Like, (laughs) is it something that the priest had to help her? Is it something that was developed by Hooked on Phonics? (laughs) I would need a little background on it. I think it's like actually pretty interesting. So it's quickly taking her through Earth's history alphabetically over the past 5,000 years. And she keeps eating chicken like there's no tomorrow. She's eating so much chicken. She's hungry. She's been asleep for like 5,000 years. So she's (laughs) like, I need sustenance. (laughs) Yes. And she did burn a lot of calories jumping through cars and, you know, Mm -hmm. falling through cars and whatnot. So... 
we find out that the case that had the four stones in it was stolen. So meet Zorg. Okay, Zorg, who's played by Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman does a fantastic job as Zorg. I would say he's probably on my list as kind of one of my favorite villains. He's like hilarious. He's funny. Yes. And mean. One, <laughs> Gary Oldman is great. When I found out that this is the same guy to play Sirius Black, I was like, holy crap. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't. Uh-uh. Was, no, it's not. Yes, it is. is Gary it? Oldman plays Sirius Black. And I was like, oh, Nuh-uh. yes. Because it's his face. He's just obviously two separate characters that look completely different from one another. It is him. Girl. Now that I'm looking at his face, yes, it is. Girl. Oh, yeah. I did not put that together. <laughs> I forgot that was some years ago. And I was like, holy crap. <laughs> I did not put that together, but he looks so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was years apart. So He's good at playing well, villains. Well, he's good at playing anything. But have you ever seen The Professionals? No. He plays a villain in that and it's pretty good. So that's another one of mine. <laughs> movies okay cool so Sirius Black (laughs) (laughs) owns a big company he's some type of like magnate or mogul and he has to fire people because of like the state of the economy and it's suggested that he fires 500,000 from like a cab company or whatever and he's like fire a million and he's just like doubled the number just to be mean or whatever yeah we see that he has like a bit of a limp and is wearing like a metal shoe or something something Mm -hmm. again he has a fabulous hairdo (laughs) and uh, (laughs) we flip back to Vito's house and Vito recalls that there was a dude with a limp that came to his house a month ago to ask about the stones he claimed that he was some type of like artifacts collector and Lilu changes into some regular clothes and she's like okay I know where the stones are and at first i was like it's really strange that she knows stuff that happened when she was blown up right and she's also was supposed to be asleep but she knows things so i don't really get that part or she was just like you know because she's like a supreme being and she just kind of has that ability yeah Mm -hmm. because when they rebuilt her they had her like arm but it was still like the statue piece so she had been still in that statue like form or whatever right yeah, so I find that a little weird, and that's one of the pieces of the story where I'm like, mm, they're pushing it a little bit. But the aliens that blew up the Bondo Shiwin, the Big Lip Mangalores, <laughs> have <laughs> come to collect their payment from Zork. So they're at one of Zork's factories, and it looks like Zork has a bunch of different companies, including a cab company, and he appears to be some type of like weapons developer or arms dealer who has created a new and approved gun to give the Mangalores for as payment. So it has some pretty cool features. There's a replay button of the gun. So if you fire a shot and hit your target, all the following shots are going to hit the same target, even if you're not aiming, which I thought was like an actually cool feature. There's a flamethrower, an ice button, lots of features or whatever. So the Mangalores bring the case to Zorg and it's empty. (laughs) And Lilu explains that the Mondo Shewans gave the stones to someone that they could trust Someone who took a different route and Lilu has to meet up with her at some hotel and the hotel is on planet Floston and it turns out to be Floston Paradise. Yeah. They were like, they completely trust humans, which was smart, which was really smart. (laughs) And that's why they gave it to somebody else. Yes, absolutely. So unfortunately, because of all of the buzz that's around Floston Paradise, there are no flights to go there. Like they're booked up for months. So back to Zorg, he's pissed because he sent these idiots to go get the stones and they bring him a case that's empty. And he's like, y'all need to get out of here. I'm not going to pay you. And they're like, hey, 
we may not have brought you the stones, but we still risked our lives. We deserve some compensation, which I guess is true. And he leaves them one case of his new and improved guns for their cause. And we find out that like humankind has been like destroying their people. And so they are kind of like a extremist group that is like trying to get revenge on humankind. Mm hmm. So anyways, he leaves them one case. The way he says cause is so weird. It doesn't sound like cause. Like I had to put on the captions because the word he said was not cause. <laughs> I can't even remember how he said it. It was like curse. Like, <laughs> I don't remember like, that part. That's not how you say that word. But anyways, the Mangalores end up blowing up when they press the red button on the new state of the art gun. And Zorg is like, Cool. <laughs> bring me that priest. So Zorg gets his ugly cronies to bring the priest to him. The guy who leads those cronies, that like black guy, he is the weirdest looking man I have ever seen. Yeah, he is. He'll pop up in different movies. I've noticed him and I will be like, oh, it's him. But he does have a weird kind of look to him. He was on Girlfriends yes! for a little while. Yes, because he was one of Lynn's weird boyfriends. Mm-hmm. I think he didn't believe in monogamy. Or yeah, something yeah. Like that. I don't know. I remember. He that. was a weird looking dude. Mm-hmm. Really weird looking dude. But the priest gets brought to Zorg. And Zorg, of course, asks about the stones. And the priest is like, nah, I ain't telling you nothing. All you want to do is destroy stuff. And so Zorg does this weird monologue slash demonstration about how chaos and destruction helps to create jobs and helps to further society. And then Zorg takes a sip of a drink and starts to choke on a cherry. <laughs> and now the priest starts taunting him, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. And he's like, hey, where's the robot to pat you on the back? <laughs> The scene is ridiculous. Yeah, because he's pressing all these buttons and all these different things start happening in his desk. And like a compartment opens and there's like this, just like weird elephant trunk looking creature <laughs> in it. Yes. And I was like, what is yes. that used for? <laughs> you, yes. you later see something else that expl- kind of explains what that is. But I was like, what does he do? What does that thing do? <laughs> <for him?" Yeah>. <laughs> but especially <laughs> it's his pet. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And it's actually kind of cute. It reminds me of like a elephant pig situation. Yeah. There's actually a Pokemon that it reminds me of. It's like an elephant Pokemon that's like maybe pink and green. It's one of the later ones. Mm, I know the blue one. Is it blue? I know there's an elephant one that is blue and he can like roll, turn and like. Not that one. Not that one. I'm talking about it evolves into Comparaja. Fanfy. Q-Fan. It looks mostly like Q-Fan. Oh, yeah, there is that. There is that one. Yes, it does kind of look like that yeah. one. I forgot about yes. that Pokemon. Yeah. I found him super cute. But like you said, he's pressing buttons. Things are happening. His office is very automated or whatever. But none of that stuff is helping. <laughs> <laughs> Even the pet is like, I don't know what you want me to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so the priest basically tells him, like, your inventions are not going to save you. And then he saves Zorg's life by smacking him on the back and the cherry comes out of his mouth or whatever. So Zorg's ugly cronies come in to take the priest away. But the two, like, strong security guard cronies that manhandle the priest have big old booties. Yes, and they put his henchmen in hoochie daddy shorts. I don't know why they were like, we need you in these tight leather booty shorts for this role. Yes. But they, of course, were built because they're like, you know, security or whatever. But like, one of them just had a big old boot. <laughs> I literally paused it. I was like, dang. <laughs> Got a lot of junk in that trunk. <laughs> yes. I thought that was hilarious. Yes. I was not expecting that big fat butt. I was like, whoa. <laughs> 
So basically, Zork spares the priest's life because he saved him. And he tells his main ugly crony <laughs> that he has one hour to bring him the stones. So back to the president. And the president's office is like a buzz trying to figure out why this planet is eating up all the satellites. And Zork's ugly crony, the one that was on Girlfriends, <laughs> dispatches this robotic spy roach to eavesdrop and get information from the president's office and his advisors. So we find out that the person who was entrusted with the stones is a diva named Plava Laguna. And I was trying to figure out what they meant by a diva. I don't know. Do they mean that she's a celebrity or that a diva is like her species? Right. Yeah. I was never able to figure that out. But she's going to sing at the charity ball in Flossin Paradise for like the big event that they're having. So the president kills the roach (laughs) (laughs) and he orders a discreet mission to retrieve the stones from Plava Laguna and bring them back to Earth. I love that name. Plava Laguna. It's pretty cool. It's cute. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we go back to Corbin and there's an Asian man on a flying cart who's serving Corbin dinner outside of his apartment window. And as cool as this sounds, like having like a food cart come to your house, it seems really wasteful. The whole point of a cart is to be in a central location where you can reach multiple customers and serve them at the same time. You think I'm finna hang out here (laughs) while you eat? He was chilling. Yeah, he was just chilling there. I guess waiting till he got his next request or whatever, but... It just seemed really wasteful to me. As cool as it sounded, like, I'm not your personal chef. What you want? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his cart was like a boat. It was cute. I thought it was pretty cute. It was cute. So Corbin ends up getting a message and he doesn't want to open it. But the Asian man is like, I'll bet you your meal that is good news. And we find out that the last two messages Corbin got were from his wife telling him that she was leaving and that his lawyer calling to say that he was leaving with his wife. So (laughs) his backstory just keeps getting worse. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So the message says that he is fired from the cab company. And this is the first time I realized that Zorg fired Corbin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never put there. that together before. I just thought he got fired because he was, he got no more points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was one of the 1 million people that Zorg decided to let go. So he gets a call from his mom who's berating him for not staying in touch. Well, I have a lot of problems with his mom. I don't like moms like this, but his mom sounds really young on the phone. I don't she know does. why they Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. why are they making her sound so young? But she's berating him on the phone for not staying in touch with her. And she's like, you know, I was in labor with you for this amount of time. You should take me on this trip with you. And he's like, girl, what you talking about? <laughs> and somehow his mother knows that he won the trip to Floss to Paradise for two days before he does or like minutes or whatever before he realizes that he won. Apparently, it's a trip for two for 10 days. That's a decent trip. No, that's a great trip. And when yes, you see the place, right. you're like, holy crap, this is a nice. Yes. Yes. So during the call, he receives the message that he won. And then General, General, did I say that? You said <laughs> General <Jamal>. Monroe. <laughs> General Monroe, who is like the president's general or whatever who's working with the president comes to his apartment and he notifies Corbin that he's been selected to save the world and retrieve the stones he's like you got all the special skills you know how to fly the machines and (laughs) weapons and all that stuff like you're the person that we're choosing also you're the only one alive from his like troop and I'm like dang all his people his people die that's traumatic so right (laughs) So on top of his PTSD, his wife left him. Yeah. (laughs) Again, again, his backstory keeps getting worse. (laughs) 
So the mission is supposed to be inconspicuous, but Corbin is like, but you made me a contest winner. Everyone that's going to be really conspicuous. Right, right. But one of the majors that's with the general is like a large woman who reminds me of Mrs. Trunchbull from yes. Matilda. <laughs> She's supposed to accompany Corbin as his wife. And he's like, no, I'm not going. And the, the general is like, looks her up and down. Why not? <laughs> that's funny to me. <laughs> oh, okay. And so... He gets a knock at the door while they're there and Lilu shows up and she removes the name tag from his door and he freaks out. He asks the three people from the military to hide in the fridge and he squeezes them all in there and he opens the door because, of course, he's in love with Lilu. Mm -hmm. And then the priest comes out of nowhere and holds him up for his tickets to Floston. And the priest is like, give me those tickets. I got to get there and get those stones. <laughs> and at the same time, the police are doing a patrol of the building and the police are looking for Corbin. But Corbin's name tag that what's her face removed from the door gets moved to a different door now this detail in the movie i'm confused about i don't understand this i always wondered about like at first i was like am i forgetting that he goes and does this or did lilo did it because right. she somehow knew that that was going to happen i don't know because she did take it off and i don't i don't right. i didn't we didn't see her put it there so i don't really get that part either yeah, I don't understand. So his name tag ends up appearing on somebody else's, like on a neighbor's door. And the police have some weird 3D ability, like you put your hands on these two circles so they can see you or whatever. It's very strange and low-key intrusive. <laughs> <laughs> like, where's your warrant to look in my apartment? That right, thing? right. So the police end up arresting Corbin's neighbor. And it turns out that Zorg's ugly crony told the police that Corbin was smuggling uranium so that they could claim his tickets to Floston so they could retrieve the stones. So the crony, like I said, the crony is going to plan to pose as Corbin so he can get on the flight to Floston. So then the weird and ugly Mangalores with the big lips who were supposed to retrieve the stones in the first place end up attacking the police and discover that it's Corbin who won the tickets and that they're going to pose as Corbin. Corbin as well and grab the stones before Zora can. I guess you forgot to mention that the Mangalores can shapeshift into people. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they can turn into anyone, basically. Yes. So yeah. So I'm assuming it was Aknot, the leader of the Mandalores. Mangalores? Mangalores, not Mandalore. Yeah. Mangalores. <laughs> He survived being blown up and he wants to get the stones as a bargaining tool. So it's time for some revenge. So while the police were there, Corbin hid the priest and Lilu. He hid Lilu in the shower and he hid the priest in his like retractable bed. So Lilu gets out of the hidden shower and she's soaking wet because of the auto wash feature. <laughs> <laughs> and while Corbin is like getting lost in Lilu's eyes when he's drawing her off, they hear a groan and Vito Cornelius is saran wrapped in <laughs> Corbin's bed. <laughs> and he has to rescue him. I thought that was funny. And the priest ends up hitting Corbin over the back of the head with one of his trophies or medals or whatever. And he takes Corbin's tickets and leaves. Mm -hmm. So the three military peeps that came to tell him about the mission are frozen in the hideaway <laughs> fridge. I don't understand how this fridge is powered to be able to freeze three people in like five minutes. <laughs> yes, yes. The technology just super advanced. Okay. <laughs> They're like, oh, you got meat in here? Let's freeze. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> 
Yes. So he decides to take the mission because he has to get there before the priest does or whatever. So we're at this transport station, which I'm assuming is like a new age airport. And the priest's assistant, whose name is David, has fake IDs for himself and for Lilu. And he's supposed to pose as Lilu's husband, Corbin. So she is to collect the stones and they're going to meet her at the temple. So they get to the ticket counter and David is a ball of nerves. He's like a young guy. And fortunately, Corbin gets there like right in time to make sure it's him that gets on the flight to Floston instead of David. And so the transport station is full of trash. Like the lady at the ticket counter apologizes for the trash. And I found out when I was like doing a little bit of research that there was supposed to be like a little side story about how these weird aliens who handle the trash were supposed to be on strike. And that's why the airport was full of trash. And I was trying to figure out why is she apologizing about the trash? And then I remember reading that mm, little fact. But I never cutting them out. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like a piece of the story that just wasn't making sense to me. Mm-hmm. So that's what that was all about. By the way, the lady, she's like, cute little flight kind of flight attendant out of she's so pretty i thought she was so pretty. yes my goodness yeah her eyes look like a model yes. <laughs> yes she's super beautiful so david ends up finding the priest and the priest decides to find a different way to complete the mission he gives a little finger key from the beginning of the movie to his assistant david and he tells david to prepare the temple for their arrival and david is like i don't want to go to egypt i thought that was so funny <laughs> yeah, he's like i don't want to be doing this <laughs> I thought that was so funny. And I was like, that's real. Mm -hmm. Like, that's real and hilarious. Because it's not like, well, you know what? I don't know how things changed around the temple in those 300 years. But I feel like that temple is not in a populated area. Like, he had to, like, go through some stuff to To get to that temple. Mm -hmm. Because it's also supposed to be hidden because it's that type of temple, you know? Right. Yeah, but I was with him. I don't want to go to Egypt. Like, So next we see this part of the movie is ridiculous. I love uh, it though. It's so, it's a cool. Yeah, it is a good scene, yeah. but it, it's just so silly. <laughs> and it's part of the reason I love this movie because it just doesn't take itself seriously. Yeah. But we see a couple go to the ticket counter claiming to be Corbin. The couple is actually the Mangalores who are masquerading as humans. And because they attacked the police when they captured Corbin's neighbor, they are actually posing as Corbin's neighbor mm-hmm. because they think that Corbin's neighbor is actually Corbin. So yeah, they come up to the front desk and the lady at the counter was like, you're Corbin. Like Corbin was just here. And so she checks the identity of the couple and she sees that the guy is actually a big lip alien <laughs> and she starts to stall. And then the alien is having like a hard time not shifting back to his alien self, like his eyes and stuff were like being weird. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, okay, yeah, I know something's up. (laughs) On board the flight, Corbin and Lilu get separated because the stewardess whisked Corbin away to do an interview with Ruby Rod. I was surprised to see that that stewardess that whisked Corbin away is actually a model who was like a judge on, is it Canada's Drag Race? (gasps) Oh, I didn't know. I don't watch that. 
Yeah, well, I don't really watch it either, but I just recognize her voice. She has like a really distinct voice. I don't know her name, but I thought it was pretty cool that she was in this movie. And I'm assuming that all of the flight attendants are models. Because they're all beautiful. (laughs) They're all very beautiful. Yes. So yeah, if you recall, Ruby Rod is the person who was announcing the winner of those tickets. So he has like promotional stuff that he's required to do as the winner. So um, the big lip aliens (laughs) realize (laughs) that they've been made and they have to go to plan B. And they end up attacking the police. And one of them uses all of the trash as cover to get on the plane to Floston. So as the police are preparing for the attack, the priest slips into like some rooms to try to figure out how he can get on the ship to Floston. So Corbin is trying to remain anonymous because like he's on a mission, obviously. But Ruby's show starts and he comes out in this leopard cat suit (laughs) that has like this open and high shoulder. And he starts his radio interview announcing Corbin's presence on the ship. And he's like, ladies, he's, you know, handsome and all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. he's available and Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. So the interview is crazy. It's craziest interview that I have ever seen (laughs) because they're walking the whole time. He's signing autographs with the paintbrush. (laughs) The microphone is also his walking stick. (laughs) And whenever he asks Corbin questions, Corbin only has like single word responses. He's like, okay. And then he randomly (laughs) sings all night long. And then he flirts with one of the stewardesses on air and then he ends his transmission. He has like these three cronies with him that are wearing like leopard print as well. Mm -hmm. He's asking them how the show went. (laughs) Yes. And they're all yes men or whatever. They're like, it's fabulous. It was wonderful. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) And then he tells them to leave with his signature. Like, get out of here. (laughs) I love that part. He's basically telling them to buzz off. And we find out that the word green in this universe means good. Oh, okay. They actually say it a lot. And it's like a little bit confusing if you don't catch it. Mm-hmm. Because he was asking them how the show went. And he was like, it was green. It was super green. So it's <laughs> a weird, weird twist of slang. But like fetch, is never going to happen. Um, so <laughs> He dismisses his cronies and he talks to Corbin and he's basically telling Corbin, your energy sucked. And when we do this talk show from five to seven tomorrow, you need to act like you have more than a two word vocabulary. And Corbin is like, let me talk to you over here. And he hems him up (laughs) basically by the throat. And Corbin, (laughs) Corbin is like, I'm not here for you. And I'm not doing that show tomorrow. Am I green? Like, am I making myself green? (laughs) Basically, am I making myself clear? Is that green? Is that green enough for you? (laughs) And Ruby is like, yes, I got it. Like <laughs> he does this weird voice. He's like, it's super green. <laughs> so funny. So Zork's ugly crony tries to board the flight to Flossin, but he gets turned away because he is the third Corbin to show up. And he gets upset and like starts pounding on the ticket counter. And then this automated police gun surround him. And basically. It's time for them to actually get on the flight. And what do you think about the plane? The way the plane was set up? So the plane was set up like, these are actual in like Asia or Japan. They're like little pods also, but they're like super tiny, which they actually do have over there. You just slide right in, which is, I mean, if you like put them to sleep, which I could do that if I was asleep. If I was awake, I'm like, I cannot, I can't be in here. How long is this flight? How long is this flight? It's cool. And it's a way to get like a lot of people on a plane, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah. <laughs> we might see that in the future. 
<laughs> yes. It came across to me as like a double wide coffin situation. <laughs> it looked like maybe the size of like a full size bed or so. When Corbin gets into his little pod on the flight, Lilu is already in there and they have like a quick conversation where Lilu tells Corbin, I'm the supreme being and I protect you. Basically not the other way around. You don't protect me. I protect you. And she learns English at this point. She learned English while she was in there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she picked up some English. And so we flip to a scene where Ruby is also on this flight and he is going down on one of the flight attendants. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they were trying extra hard for us to know that Ruby wasn't gay. Yeah. And I guess. <laughs> like, even though he came across as androgynous. Yeah, he's androgynous. Mm-hmm. Yes, but he wasn't gay. And so yeah. there's this weird scene where the people working outside the plane have to burn parasites out of the landing gear. Mm-hmm. Those parasites were so nasty looking. They looked yeah. gross. Yeah, they were disgusting. They looked like little sacks. <laughs> Yes, they were just weird. They were just weird. Then the ugly crony, Zork's ugly crony, calls Zork (laughs) to let him know that he failed, that he wasn't able to get on the plane. And Zork starts pressing buttons on his desk, and he basically blows up the phone that his ugly crony was talking on. And so he killed his right-hand man because he He wasn't doing his job. Right, yeah, he failed him. Mm-hmm. So basically now Zor kind of has to do things himself, right? So the priest ends up finding his way on the plane through the landing gear. When I tell you them burning the parasites off of that flight was, they didn't really need that scene. <laughs> it was just like a, just a random detail to incorporate into the, the whole moment of them. I don't know. It just was random. It was I feel no- like even more so the workers who were actually refueling the plane and doing that they were having a conversation and i was like what are we supposed to get out of this conversation I'm- just a filler and they were like the guy was like jamaican and yeah. I think they were smoking weed yeah. too it was like a whole little weird little thing i was like this is like extra just for no reason yes <laughs> so <laughs> so right as the flight is about to take off Ruby brings the flight attendant to climax. There's always a sex scene, always. And it's like, we don't, we don't always need one, okay? Not always. So we find out from the president's office that the planet that's growing is sending radio waves. And they are assuming that it's communicating with someone. And right at that time, Zork receives a call from someone named Mr. Shadow. So Shadow says he's not far away now. He has a really deep, menacing voice. And Zork says, you know, I'll have the stones soon. But now my costs have tripled. And the shadow is like, money isn't important. I want those stones. And then a scared Zorg starts bleeding a chocolate sauce from his forehead. (laughs) (laughs) Similar to the general that we saw earlier. So the shadow is a representation of the evil that's contained inside of the planet. And he is able to make people bleed from their foreheads. Yeah. So that's a thing didn't realize that the evil could communicate. I did not remember this detail of the movie. I find it a little weird, but the radio wave stopped as soon as his call ends with Zorg. It's really interesting that Zorg does not realize that the earth is going to die. Right. And you're going to be on the earth. Where are you going? This thing is supposed to be destroying the earth. It wants to kill everything basically in like the whole universe. (laughs) You're about to just be chilling with no one with all the money, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> yes like why don't you know this so yeah <laughs> so next they arrive in Floston on the flight and it looks like a giant cruise ship mm-hmm. and it basically is 
the more you look at it, it looks like a, a giant kind of futuristic cruise ship. So the priest successfully stows away in the plane and Corby has this, Corby, Jesus. <laughs> Corbin has this tacky blue and gold room. It's so tacky. I think it's so tacky. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's supposed to be luxurious, I guess, for 1997. But next thing we know, the diva arrives, Plava Laguna, and she has a crew carrying her bags. And she's super tall and she's wearing like this big veil. So we kind of don't know what she looks like, but we know she's weird mm -hmm. because of how tall she is. And she appears blue. And she has some type of abilities because she recognizes that Lilu is close by without seeing her. Right. And so she sends one of her cronies to go and tell, everybody has cronies. Yeah. She, sends one of her, <laughs> she sends one of her cronies to go tell Lilu, like, hang out here. I'm going to give you the stones after the performance. So Lilu is literally just hanging out there for like a hot yeah. minute. One thing I like about this movie is like the music that plays. Cause like when she comes, the diva enters, they play like this mystical melody and like kind of play like really nice melodies throughout, but it kind of added to her like, ooh, she's like this diva thing. Yeah, so I thought yes. it was pretty neat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so it's five o'clock. And it's time for Ruby Rod's talk show or radio broadcast where they're doing a live show with Corbin. So Ruby is doing his thing, letting people know about like the prominent folks that are in the audience. He grabs some champagne and we see that the worker who's holding the champagne is the main shape-shifting big lip Mangalore's human alter ego. It's actually like a really attractive black man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we recognize him from earlier in the movie and we realize that at least one one of the big lip aliens made it on the plane. And then when he goes to this like little private room, he has a ton of them. How did he get that many people onto Flossin? I don't we know. We don't find that out. But he had at least, if you think about the coming scenes, at least 30 yeah. of them there. So it was hard enough to get that one priest to sneak into there. Mm -hmm. How did he get, maybe they just shape-shifted shape -shifted into, into other the people's people. places. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Who knows? It. I don't know. I like the scene when Ruby enters the opera house and then you see all the different characters. There's like a movie star. There's some type of sports star. There's some type of emperor and they're all like dressed up and the costumes are cool. It's pretty neat. Yes. Also, it was totally inappropriate because Ruby was like, the emperor has a daughter and she sang oh. for me. And it was, he like played sex noises. Yes. <laughs> like, he comes across as like a shock jock a little bit, but whatever. He's just rude. Uh, <laughs> but the Mangalores are trying to exact some revenge and make sure they get those stones. So it's time for the opera show. My favorite scene of the whole movie is about to come up. I love this part. I used to try to do it. I, it was a whole thing. <laughs> yes. So the diva is on stage and she is a weird alien lady who has, I don't know if she's wearing an outfit or if this is her body, but it's like a pretty blue latex. She has these weird like dreads and <laughs> coming off of her body Tentacle and she things. has like a yes like a big curvy head in the back and so she starts singing and the opera is really beautiful and starts off like slow like opera typically does and while the opera is happening there's a ship that's requesting to dock to do some repairs and it's actually zorg so while the opera's happening, someone knocks on the diva's door and her security answers, but it's the big lip shapeshifters and they attack 
her people who are in the room and they're tossing the room looking for the stones. And so Lilu is standing by waiting to get the stones from the diva, but then she recognizes those aliens as the ones that blew up the ship that she was on with Amando Shewin. Again, how she knew that, we don't know. Because she has like a whole <laughs> vision where she sees the whole thing happening. Right. While she's that, and she's getting upset because obviously she cares about the Monoshuin. Yes. So she goes in there and she starts fighting the Mangalores. And the music from the opera picks up to match like the pace of the fight scene, it's which really good. I think is, yeah, it is really good. And so it's like almost like a 1990s hip hop ish. Mm-hmm. tempo in the background and so the diva starts dancing which i thought was hilarious like the diva, <laughs> i didn't remember her dancing at all because i feel like people in the opera typically don't uh-huh. but when she started dancing i was like girl this is hilarious mm-hmm. but then she starts doing like the fancy high notes and it's like just really good yes the opera ends and the diva gets a standing ovation and Lilu has beat up all the big lip aliens <laughs> and Lilu finds a, a box in the diva's room that we assume have the stones in it. So one of the big lip aliens actually escaped and informed the others that they got ambushed. So the leader, Aknot, declares war. He's like, oh, if they want war, they got a war. And Zork comes in with his freshly designed gun and he finds Lilu with the box in the diva's suite. So Lilu throws it at him and once again escapes through a vent. I don't know what this girl had, what's her thing with vents. But basically he's trying to shoot her up inside the vents and she ends up getting really scared, which actually is kind of terrifying. If I'm in a vent and someone's shooting up the vents, I'm just dead. Right. <laughs> it's going to be really hard to escape with like your limited movement to get around or whatever. Lilu is just like... She's just terrified inside those vents. So yeah, the big lips take over the ship. (laughs) 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 And we see that the priest is in handcuffs in the brig of the ship because he was discovered as like a stowaway on the plane. And so they captured him because he, you know, didn't buy a ticket. And (laughs) the big lips start shooting up the concert hall. A stray bullet hits the diva and panic ensues. People are freaking out. I was so mad she didn't duck. Places. I was like, girl, get down. You're a yes. big target. And you're like 6'7". Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a lot of real estate. You need to... But she didn't look very bendy to me. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know she, how fast she could have got on the floor. She the ground. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So Zork decides to set a bomb to go off in 20 minutes because like everybody's panicking there. So Ruby Rod's show is still going like he's still broadcasting. So he starts narrating what's happening on Floss in Paradise while people all over like the universe are listening to the radio show, which I think is like an actually cool element of the story. Mm -hmm. So basically he's like... Floss in Paradise is under attack by ugly warriors with big lips. And And it's stink. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how the military figure out that, oh, that's the Mangalores. It was funny. (laughs) Right. Right. So Corbin is with the diva and she has telepathic powers. The diva tells Corbin, Lilu needs you and that you need to give her the stones. And she's like, Lilu's in danger. She's, of course, still in the vents. And Lilu is just in there hurt and crying. So Zork is actually headed back to his ship with the case that he thinks contains the stones and the diva has blue blood mm-hmm. and Zork leaves the planet, you know, on his aircraft or whatever. And he opens the box and he realizes the stones aren't in the box and he just starts crying. <laughs> Maybe you should have opened it when you were there for a quick second. Like that was so sad. Yes. Like, why wouldn't you look inside it? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense. 
the diva's voice is pretty cool they kind of like she talks but they also have like this echoey sound over it and gives her this like majestic or magical vibe to her it's pretty cool i like this character i thought it was neat yes she's great even though she's only in the story for like a very brief time yeah okay so the diva basically says that the stones are in her and Corbin is like, girl, what you talking about? But he, (laughs) he figures out that they're actually inside of her body. And so he sticks his hand inside of her bullet wound and pulls out one of the stones. And Ruby is like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the freaking big lips are like coming, like trying to check to see if the whole theater is empty. And that part's funny when he (laughs) gives Ruby the gun. Yeah. Yes, this part is hilarious because one of the Mangalore warriors comes over and Corbin is able to subdue him and now he's on the ground holding a gun to his head. And so Corbin needs to get the stones out of the diva, so he tells Ruby to hold the gun <laughs> to hold the gun against the Mangalore's head. And Ruby, of course, is nervous and he's like shaking or whatever, and he's like, Well, what am I supposed to do? And he's like, if he moves, shoot him. <laughs> so Corbin's getting the stones out of the diva. And he calls to Ruby and Ruby is so nervous that he shoots the gun on accident. He <laughs> He's like, the man cool. sorry, my man, sorry. <laughs> so oh, I thought that was so funny. Yeah. But it totally makes sense. Like I would be super nervous too. So Corbin gives Ruby the stones inside of his like suit jacket and he tells him to guard them with his life. And then he comes out of the opera house guns ablazing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this little neat action scene happens and the whole time Ruby is narrating what's going on on the radio. So the Mangalore end up cornering Corbin and he's able to get out of it. And he's able to take care of the Mangalores with like some clever tricks and a bomb or whatever. So Ruby basically just screams the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> He essentially just is screaming and kind of narrating what's going on. And there's 10 minutes left on Zorg's bomb and he has to go back to retrieve the stone. So Corbin and Ruby head for the control room where the Mangalorian leader and a few of his warriors are holding up like the crew of the ship. They're holding them hostage. And the priest is there too because he was in the crew's custody. So Corbin goes in to negotiate and he kills the leader of the Mangalores really quickly, like a quick headshot. And he's like, anybody else want to negotiate? Yeah. He just made quick work of the situation. (laughs) (laughs) And so the hostage situation is over. And Corbin goes to find Lilu in the diva suite in the vents. And she's hurt and she's just like... All shot up. <laughs> yeah, she's having a hard time. I don't really yeah. get how she's not dead. I'm just going to put it on the fact yes. that she's the supreme being or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows? So when Corbin goes to get her, get Lilu out of the diva suite, Ruby follows behind him and discovers the bomb that Zorik set. And there's five minutes left. And when the priest comes behind him... Ruby is like, what is this? And the priest is like, oh, snap. Like, it's a bomb. He's like, it can't be a bomb because they have bomb detectors, right? And then all of the alarms go off. (laughs) Finally, that there's a bomb aboard. And of course, chaos ensues yet again. And everybody has to evacuate in five minutes. So Lilu, Ruby... The priest and Corbin find Zorg's ship and they use it to evacuate. So Zorg goes to the bomb with 10 seconds left and he puts in a chip very slowly. I don't understand why he had to do it so carefully, but... I think maybe because it might go off if you like do it the wrong way or something, I want to say. I guess, but he puts the chip in and it stops the bomb from going off with like five seconds left. Mm -hmm. But then... Turns out the Mangalores have their own bomb that they brought with them. And they're basically like for La Rasa. 
and they <laughs> hit the button and end up destroying the ship and Zorg dies in the explosion right as Corbin and the crew that's with him take off in Zorg's ship. So Ruby ends his transmission and he's like, this is the best show I've ever done. <laughs> And it is. So the president is relieved to hear that the stones are on their way to the temple. So, you know, they have hope to be saved. Corbin is taking care of Lilu and all of her wounds while they're on their way to Egypt. And she's talking about humans are crazy and they're always killing stuff and they they only seek to destroy. And like, why should I even save them? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Mm-hmm. And the president is celebrating too soon, but there's a problem. Because something is heading towards Earth with incredible speed. It's a ball of fire with a diameter of 1,200 miles. It's headed towards the Earth. And they have like two hours before it hits the Earth. And Lilu decides to finish her training. I don't know where she got the CD-ROM from. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's on the internet. She finishes her training and she gets to W and she sees all the war and like all of the images of like all the wars that have happened over the past 5,000 years. And that really breaks her heart. Yeah. You know, she sees the kind of lack of humanity and like, I'm supposed to save these people. Like, geez. Yeah. Basically humans, they suck. And she's like, dang, (laughs) should I, should I even bother? Right. Right. So they arrive in Egypt and they get to the temple. They place Lilu in the middle and they start placing the stones. This is actually my favorite scene of the movie. Yeah, it's a good one. Of them trying to figure out how to use the stones. Mm -hmm. And so... First, they have to figure out which stones go on which pillars, and they figure that out because of the symbols. But now they don't know what's next. Like, they ask Lilu, like, hey, girl, how we open these stones? And she's, like, half dead. And she's, yes. like, wind, wind blows and fire burns and waterfalls. And then she kind of passes out. Yeah. And they're, like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> that was helpful. And also, like, the priest, Cornelius, is, like, they didn't tell you what they're supposed to do also? This is your job as well. What are we supposed to do? Yes. He was, yeah. like, yeah, that's- I've seen some pictures, but I don't. i don't really know so yeah Yeah. they don't know how to activate the stones and ruby ruby does not understand the severity of the situation i think ruby is just relieved that they escaped from flossen before it blew up but he says something like oh maybe it's a game like (laughs) and he's like this is not a game the earth is about to be destroyed in just a few minutes like get it together But yeah, they're in danger of being destroyed. And so they basically have three minutes to figure out how to open the stones. And they each take a stone and David, the assistant who met them there, kind of breathes on his and something happens to the stone. It kind of opens up a little bit. And he's like, hey, something happened. And they come over and they're like, what's going on? Can you show me what you did? And they breathe on it a little more and it activates. And so this is when they realize that you have to use that element in order to open up the stones. And so because he breathed on it, he used the power of air or wind. Mm -hmm. And then they use a little bit of sand for the earth and like a little bit of sweat for the water. Gross. Yeah. And and then they have to do fire. And so Corbin, who had been trying to stop smoking, only (laughs) has a single match left. The match almost goes out, which freaks all of them out as they're watching. But it successfully stays lit long enough to activate all the stones. And now it's time for Lilu to do her thing. Mm-hmm. So Bruce Willis picks up Lilu and he's like, hey, girl. Hey, girl, it's time to get Turn you on your powers. We need, we need you to yes. work. <laughs> yes. Go, go, Gadget. Yeah. Like, wake up. And Lilu is like tired and she's like disenchanted. And she's like, all y'all going to do is destroy stuff. So I might as well let you die in a ball of fire. And, <laughs> and he's like, no, life is worth saving. And he takes his precious time yes. telling her that he loves her. It's like, 
you better I would say it right away Lilu I love you save us uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> right she's like I don't know like, love what's love and he's like uh <laughs> right and it's like we don't have time for you to be you know teasing or get straight to it uh-huh. so they kiss each other consensually this time mm-hmm. and there's like 10 seconds left until the earth is destroyed and then all of the elements come together all five and a light comes from Lilu that destroys the ball of fire all the stones close up and that dark planet slash ball of fire is destroyed just 62 miles away from the earth's surface so yeah that happens. They save the world mm-hmm. and Ruby is pissed off and he leaves. No. He was like, uh uh-uh. uh. Is- <laughs> David starts screaming. Like he's like, Yeah. He's like, What are you screaming for? <laughs> he's like, every five minutes is a bomb or something. I'm leaving. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Ruby was over it and I don't blame him. Like it was all a bit much. He didn't sign up for that. His is his DJ gig. He's supposed to, you know, have a good yes. vacation, to have some fun with the ladies, and next thing you know, he's saving the world. <laughs> Yes, yes. I don't think it was cool that he was able to make it to the end of the movie and like be a part of that last scene. Yeah. That that was pretty cool. So yeah, they save the world. Next thing we know, the president goes to Nucleo Labs where Lilu and Corbin are inside the reactor, like being made whole by the weird genetic 3D printer. And they're in there making out. They're doing some more than making out. (laughs) Yeah. And then Corbin's mom calls and starts berating the president or whatever. And the movie is over and the world is saved. And Corbin gets his perfect lady. So that's it. Mm -hmm. That's the end of the fifth element. So at the end of every review, we ask if the movie holds up and if it's worth a rewatch. What do you think, Arabia? Does it hold up? I think the story holds up. I can see people being set back because of like the way the technology was i think it was pretty good for the like it was 97 and obviously it's so much better nowadays but i enjoy it i watch it so much that i still like it the story's still good and there's no like really dated things involved with that other than just the animation and stuff like that what do you think yeah i agree i think that the movie holds up pretty well the story is really good and besides the graphics and maybe like the quality of the costumes Mm -hmm. like for the most part the story really holds up really well and i actually think ruby rod's character probably holds up better today than yeah yeah it did that definitely it's very progressive of them (laughs) to have that character yes so i would say that it's totally worth a rewatch Mm -hmm. i think also but i kind of like the graphics and stuff aren't as good because it kind of keeps the magic of the 90s when you watch a 90s movie you know obviously it's not as developed as now but it just kind of goes with the flow of the movie like it creates the magic for me so i would i'm not mad at the graphics it just i don't know it just keeps it kind of precious to me so i was thinking because i was thinking i was like see this is a movie i can see them wanting to redo they can make the graphics really really good but i don't want them to because i feel like i like the magic of it and then the people the cast is great I thought like they had some pretty cool people in it. So, yeah. Yeah. I really enjoy the movie. And I, of course, think it's worth a rewatch. Like, even though the graphics are old and the movie is like two hours long, (laughs) I was entertained all the way through the movie. There's never a part of the movie where I feel like bored or anything. So I think it's absolutely worth a rewatch. And because I watched it for this podcast, I understand the movie more than I ever had before because I was paying like extra attention to it. So it even makes more sense now. Mm -hmm. I don't like the non-consensual kiss again this comes up too often in media yeah for my time. but i like that she wasn't like oh no she was like uh-uh do not touch me i glad i'm like she was like no not having because most of the time it kind of just gets kind of played off and the girl kind of doesn't really do or say anything but she was like 
You're gonna get this gun to your head if you try something like that again. Right, right. And even worse, like they portray the women as if they might like Right, it. right. And Ugh, no, like, they didn't do that with yeah. Lilu's character. I like that. Right, right. So the story has romance, adventure, action, a lot of comedy. It touches a lot of different genres and I and sci-fi mm-hmm. as well. So it's like a really good kind of all-in-one movies. And most of all, just Ruby freaking Yeah, like, <laughs> He's the best. Even though he comes, I realized he didn't come into the movie until like halfway through. Mm-hmm. The movie was already good. But when he got added to the middle of the movie, it just cranked things up even more. I really enjoyed it him. He was a good spark to the movie. Yes. The reason why I was like, this could be a book. I like want more. I want to know more. I want to know, like I went down a rabbit hole of just trying to learn different stuff about the movie and like the diva, like her character. I was like, I want to know about her. I want to like know what she is. Like, why is she like this? And is she the only one? And she's so cool. And then I want to learn about like, you know, the other 5,000 years. How do they figure out, you know, the stones and then the fifth element and then how did they how did they create that and the mono and where they come from? I don't know. I just think there's a lot of things that you can learn. So that's why I thought it was like maybe a book when I was younger and then there was like a lot more details, but it, there isn't. And I just thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like it could be from a book. Apparently it was also supposed to be a trilogy, but they combined everything into a I remember. Book, which mm-hmm. reading that. Yeah. Which I'm glad they did because anybody got time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Arabia, do you have any final thoughts about the movie before we close out? Watch it. This is like number two for me. You have to check this movie out. I don't care. It's great. It's just a great tale. It's like, I don't know. I think it's awesome. <laughs> I just really enjoy yes. it. And I enjoyed reviewing it. So I was so excited to review one of my favorite movies. But Yes, this has been great. This is a movie that I watch periodically throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Just randomly, I kind of get in the mood to watch it. So maybe I watch it like two or three times a year. So Same. I'll probably rewatch it before the year is over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Personally. So Arabia, can you guess how the critics and regular folks over at Rotten Tomatoes rated The Fifth Element? I used to remember this. I don't think the critics gave it a good rating, <laughs> like 50%, maybe, I want to say. I want to say it was a little bit lower. And then like the people, maybe like 70 Okay, actually, you should give them a little bit more credit. The critics gave it a 71% oh, okay. and the regular folks gave it 86 Okay. I feel like the critics were being a little harsh. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like it's definitely better than 71%. Yeah. But I could understand the regular folks. Mm-hmm. It's 100% for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would give it much higher than they did as well. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much for listening to our review of The Fifth Element here at Sub Media Reviews. I want to say a special thanks to Arabia for joining me today. Say goodbye, Arabia. Goodbye, everyone. You're welcome. I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> So don't forget to tune in next time when I'll be reviewing the 1993 to 2000 sitcom Boy Meets World. Peace out. Thanks for listening to Sub Media Reviews. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane just as much as I did. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like me to review next, or if you just want to share your thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest at Sub Media Reviews and on SubMediaReviews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve the show and spread the word to new listeners. So until next time, peace out, home slices. Peace out.